I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I told you a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, that we would come back to these verses and we would actually look at them. And so we're going to do that this, this evening. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. So out of reverence for God's Word as it is read, please join me by standing. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. and Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. In this Thanksgiving season, we sit here before you to hear, to hear you, to lift up our hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back. I think there's one quotation, and I came up with another one after I put all that together, so there will actually be two quotations tonight, but they'll be at the end. So thinking right there on Luke 18, and I hope you have your Bibles open there, Luke 18, the whole point of our Lord's story is laid out in verse 1 to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Whatever you walk away from, Luke 18, 1 through 8, you need to walk away encouraged to always pray and never lose heart. And so he uses two characters in the story. You can't miss it. There's the unrighteous judge who fears neither God nor respects man. And thus, a judge who is wholly and completely different from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the, re the way Jesus puts this story together. If this is an unrighteous judge, how much better are our, you know, do we have it with our Father? If this is the way an unrighteous judge is, how much better? You have to think of from the, from the worst to the better, from the, the lesser to the greater. That's how he wants you to, to see this. And so here's a judge who is wholly different from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. The other character is a widow. And like most widows in most of the world through almost all of human history, here's a widow who has no power, she has no position, she has a nothing to persuade anyone to stand up for her. There's nothing in her to persuade anyone to stand up for her. She comes to this judge utterly penniless and needy. And so as I said, Jesus arguing, if you will, in this story, from the lesser to the greater, is pointing out to us, if a godless, unjust judge will stand up for such a nobody, how much more is it? that your Father, who does love you, will respond to your cries of justice, for justice. And that's how he ends that. How much more 
to the point that you can rest assured he will give justice to them speedily. But then he leaves us with a question mark. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Notice where the problem lies in the story. Where does the problem lie in the story? With us. That's our problem. We don't believe God very often. So I like the, I appreciate the way he leaves the story there for us to be corrected by that. But here's the willingness of the Father. Just like the Catechism says, children coming to a Father who is able and ready to help us. Shame on us that we resist that because we don't think he would be able or ready. That's kind of the way Jesus is going with it. So there's that story that our Lord gave. So let me move to a second illustration. I love the story of Augustine's life. It's in the confessions, in his confessions, specifically the first 10 10 books or first 10 chapters. He gets a little woolly in the last three when he gets off into philosophy and all this other stuff. But those first 10 chapters... Um, it's just delightful. It's his whole story, and he tells it in a prayer. There's just so much about it that's instructive. And one of the most touching people in his biography, one of the most touching people in his biography is, is his mother, Monica. Monica was abused by Augustine's father, her husband, Patricius. And she was snubbed by Augustine, her son, and yet Monica Praise. He notes that she was a fiercely praying woman. She prays persistently, specifically for her son Augustine. She prays for him persistently. She prays like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so after a long season of going to the church building, she would do her prayers at the church building. After a long season of going to the church building daily and weeping in prayer for her son. It sounds almost like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, right? Who's praying and the priest thinks she's kind of weird because she's praying quietly and all that. Here's Monica, Augustine's mother, praying daily at the church, weeping and praying, and finally the pastor of the church comes to her after seeing her for days and days and weeks like this. And he goes to her and he says, look, go your way. Quote, it is not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. It's not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. And with Paul Harvey, we know the rest of the story. He didn't perish. Became one of the greatest Western Christian theologians. And in fact, just to put frosting on that cake, her abusive husband was converted. Patricius became a Christian and stopped abusing her. It's an amazing set of stories and a most touching seen. And so we're going to allow ourselves this evening to become encouraged in prayer by thinking on the results of prayer in different and maybe unusual biblical situations. So we begin with an unviable, impossible, unthinkable victory. And that's Asa. That's the Old Testament reading that Bill was reading for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And I highly encourage you to read 2 Chronicles and 1 Chronicles because one of the major themes of 1 and 2 Chronicles is not to tell the story of 1 and 2 Kings all over again and bore you to tears. It's to emphasize the role of play, a prayer all the way through. Right? So the prayer of Jabez is 1 Chronicles chapter 4. It's there for a reason because the theme throughout 1 and 2 Chronicles is the value of prayer. 
Okay, all the way through, everybody get it? I'll start preaching a sermon on that alone here in a minute. So I just want you to get that. All right, so Asa is a great example. Here's an inviolable victory. There we are in 2 Chronicles, and we see an impossible situation. If you were listening to what Bill is reading, we have a one million man army, 2 Chronicles 14.9, a one million man army looming over God's people that only has about 500,000 men. That's in 2 Chronicles 14 and verse 8. And so what's the ratio? Two to one. Right? It's an impossible situation. They outgun them. They outnumber them. They out-equip uh, them. They have more over there on the other side. And we've got a half of the size of an army than what they have. It's an an impossible situation, but notice that Asa does not despair. He doesn't worry about everything, pray about nothing, and complain without ceasing. Right? He doesn't despair. Instead, as the battle lines are drawn up and each army faced each other, right? So you got half an army, or you got a smaller army over here, and they look over their horizon, and here's a million men. By the way, a million, think about Oklahoma City. Right? Oklahoma City proper is 600,000 people. Right? Think about 600,000 people lining up shoulder to shoulder. Would that fill the horizon, y'all? It'd fill the horizon from end to end. And if you have them in ranks, it would just be stunning. <laughs> to, put it, you know, to put it in the least possible picture there, it would be stunning. And so as the battle lines draw up and they face each other, it says in 2 Chronicles 14.11, Asa cried out to Yahweh his God. Now notice that Asa's prayer is not a Hail Mary pass in the last two seconds of the game, and you hope, you just hope that maybe somehow the catcher catches it at the end and makes the touchdown and we win, right? It's not a Hail Mary pass. Notice what happens. It says he cried out. So there's an intensity to his prayer. It's very much like the intensity of Augustine's mother, Monica. He cried out. He didn't sit back unemotional. He cried out. He cried out to whom? He cried out, it says, to Yahweh, his God. I think that's instructive. He knows God's name because God wants to be known by his people. And he knows that Yahweh is, who is God? Is God. Right? So he's very confident of that. And his cry then is based upon God's actions in the past and God's revelation of himself. His prayer goes like this, 2 Chronicles 14, verse uh, 12. O Yahweh, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Now where does that come up? Where do you see that coming up in the Old Testament before Asa? Anybody heard of David and Goliath? Right? Have you, have you ever thought about how... Um, you know, there's Joshua, earlier on, there's Joshua and his ragtag army fighting the Amalekites, and he keeps losing until Moses raises his hands, right? But still, there's, a, there's that sense of the mighty and the weak, and he sides and he takes up the, the side of the weak. Anybody thought about the Exodus? Right? Here's the world's superpower, and they hold this slave race ethnic group in their hands, and they cannot get out of their hands. It's the one who rises up on their behalf. There's none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. There's so much Bible packed in that short little sentence. He's drawing from God's revelatory actions in the past. There's none to help like you to help between the mighty and the weak. 
And so then he cries out, help us, O Lord, O Yahweh, our God, our God. It's interesting. You're our God. Help us, O Yahweh, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. In your name, under your authority. Always remember, in your name is the idea of submission to the authority of the one by whom you come, right? In the name of the Lord, in his, under his authority and in submission to him. So this is not, this is not a fight that Asa wanted. It's not a fight that he caused because he was a knucklehead or something. This is one that was imposed upon him because they're the people of God. So we come against this foe, against uh, this multitude in your name. And then he goes on to say, O Yahweh, you are our God. He affirms it again. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And there's where he ends his request. Don't let this overpowering force over here prevail against you. The fight is really between you and them. So here's what we know about you. That's what he's saying in the prayer. Here's what we know about you. Here's our trust in you. We rely on you. And here's our request of you. Those are the three parts of that prayer. And the result is in verse 12. Yahweh defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. It doesn't mean that God's people just sat back and just stood there and said, go get them, tiger. Right? They were in combat. But notice that the Lord prevailed. Okay? And we've talked about that before, how God, in God's sovereign decree, it's often worked out, and He intends it this way, it's part of His sovereign decree, is worked out through human response, humanly responsible action. And so they go into combat, but they started out with this prayer, and the Lord brings about this great victory. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And it's an unviable victory. It's an impossible victory. It shouldn't have happened because they're outgunned and outnumbered. Impossible. Unlikely. And here it is. Okay? So that was a in the heat of a moment, one-shot prayer. But there are also slow, steady, and steadfast prayers that have slow, steady results. Okay? Slow, steady, steadfast prayer and the results are slow and steady. So here I want you to think about Ezra and Nehemiah. You may remember if you were here during the evening series on Nehemiah, we talked about Ezra some and spent all that time in Nehemiah. As you may recall, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 recount a series of events that happened a hundred years before Ezra. A hundred years before Ezra, before his time, and basically it's, a it's telling the story of how the exiles began to return to the promised land. It's Ezra chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 that tells Ezra's story. 7, 8, 9, and 10 is about when Ezra arrived, and you will notice if you read it, it's packed with prayer. In fact, packed with prayer records. In fact, Ezra prays, for example, in chapter 9, verse 8, brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. I told the elders one day after I got done with my morning devotions and happened to run through that passage that that phrase stuck and I couldn't get it out of my head and that's something we ought to pray for, for us, that God would brighten our eyes and send us a little reviving. What a great prayer, it's a good little prayer. What's interesting is that Ezra, as he prays that, 
that it, it in itself is kind of a slow, steady prayer, and it has a slow, steady result. There's almost no action, no result that we can see that comes as a result of this prayer, except for a few little social changes. Specifically, a few people in the covenant community begin to acknowledge and repent of their, um, their uh, religious intermarriage. And then that's it. Nothing else results from it. Okay, and so then there's a 12-year gap from Ezra to Nehemiah. But you've got all of Ezra's prayers over here, and you get the sense that this was not the only time he prayed these prayers, and you have like, it looks like no result, and then all of a sudden, 12 years later, God opens the way for Nehemiah to return and add muscle to Ezra's uh, efforts. And so Nehemiah is actually a big part of the result of Ezra's prayers for how long before? Twelve years before! And then you find that Nehemiah himself is a praying man. The answer to Ezra's prayer is a praying man. Woohoo! That's great. It's a nice little cycle there, right? And so Nehemiah chapters 1 through 11 covers, as we pointed out as we were going through that, covers the first year of Nehemiah's governorship, and as I said, it's also packed with prayers, starting back at the very beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, when he begins to start thinking about Jerusalem in its hot mess. And then as he goes in chapter 2 to stand before Artaxerxes, you find him prayer again, and then when he's at Jerusalem, he's praying constantly. And slow, steady, steadfast prayers, just like Ezra 12 years before. And now they're teaming up with these slow, steady, steadfast prayers. And then you know the, how the story unfolds, how there is success. There's a rebuilding of the wall, which took a lot of sweat and muscle and toil. Right? The people became part of the answer to that prayer. There's a result of prayer. And then in Nehemiah chapter 13, after God's people began to slip at the end of his 12-year governorship, as the people began to slip and slide back into their old learned habits, you find Nehemiah praying again at the end of chapter 13. His final prayer, in fact, it's the last words of Nehemiah. Remember me, O God, for good. And I want you to think about that. That prayer is answered. Not spectacularly, not with fireworks, not with parted seas and, and cleansed lepers, but it's answered by God, by God ensuring that both Ezra and Nehemiah, that their books are actually maintained in sacred scriptures and are part of the story of God's people for all ages. Ezra and Nehemiah's prayers then were actually uh, were being answered, and they will finally fully be answered hundreds of years later in the coming of the greater son of David. So notice that. The results of the slow, steady, steadfast prayers show up both some in their lifetime and long beyond their lifetime. Both in their lifetime and long beyond their lifetime. Which then brings us, or should bring us, it brings me to think about Job. Job, 
unanswered answers. Now, I don't remember how many of you were here when I did that five-part series on Job. Yes, you could do a five-part series on Job. I did it, and it worked, right? We did a five-part series on Job. And it's, one, it's the one item that shows up in Job from chapter 3 of Job to the very end. In that whole story, and all the things that are said, and all that happens, Job is the only person in that whole story, in that true tale, who is praying. Nobody else is praying in Job. He's the one that is keeping the conversation going with God all the time. Okay? And so like, for example, in chapter 10 of Job, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul and I will say to God. And then there's this prayer. And Job's grievous condition and situation grinds on as you read Job and it exasperated, it exasperated his three friends who have all the easy answers, all the right answers. They have all of this obtuse theology and they take it and they shovel it out and they throw it at him. They even come down to shame him with their rigid algorithm, well, great sickness must mean there was great sin. You remember that? Great sickness must mean there was great sin. There they got it way off wrong. But Job is the one who persists. And there are no answers. Job prays. And there's no seeable, observable response. He even prays in chapter 19. He prays, oh, that my words were written. Somebody needs to hear it, see some humor in this statement. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved on a rock forever. And as the reader, an astute reader of Job reads that, he can at least and she can at least slightly chuckle at it because what is she reading? What is he reading? The result of his prayer. Thousands of years after Job. And Job never saw it come. And then Job prays again in chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. He's, he's praying. He's got confidence that this will happen, but it's, he doesn't see the answer. The answer hasn't been shown yet. A, a First fruits of the answer has come, but it was long after Job decayed and disappeared. Jesus was raised from the dead, and the guarantee that one day then Job will rise and see his Lord face to face in his flesh. Anybody catch the significance of it? Okay. And sure enough, God does reply to his prayers, but he never, notice, he never explains the purpose of the pain. He never explains the reason for Job's body and soul to be racked by disease and grief. But the result of Job's prayers is unanswered answers. I like to put it that way. Unanswered answers. It recalls to our minds that there is more going on than we can fathom. 
And so God answers, God's answers to our prayers may well feel and look always like they are unanswered. Let me say it again. God's answers to our prayers may very well feel like they are really unanswered. And yet, notice what Job receives from God. Job receives from God God's attaboy, if you will. For all to hear and all to read and all to remember for millennia, thousands upon thousands of years. Job begins with God's own testimony of Job. My servant Job, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God says it in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3. And then at the end of Job, he tells Job's three friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now I think that's instructive, and that's a whole different sermon, and I'll be glad to go preach that Job series again if you want. But that tells us we need to be careful about the comforting words that we get from our mouths. Especially if it's obtuse theology and shallow and not, you know, not faithful. Okay? And ends up causing more trouble. And then God says to the friends, He makes and gives them some of Job's ailments. And then He says, Now you need to go ask Job to pray for you. I find that satisfying conclusion. You need to have Job pray for you. The very one you thought was, Well, great sickness means great sin. I'll show you. None there. Job continues to pray. He prays for his three knucklehead friends and they're restored. So finally, we finally have an answer to a prayer in Job, or at least one that we see as an answer. But all the way through, it's the unanswered answers. And there's so many sides to Job that reminds us that what Jesus was telling us to be encouraged to pray always and to never lose heart. And so these, are, these results of Job's prayers are unanswered answers which then bring us to our Lord Jesus and to suffering salvation. This is the last point. Um, to our Lord Jesus and suffering salvation. So let me just say this up front. For whatever the reason is, and it's probably because we're all very, fairly egotistical and fairly selfish, but whatever the reasons are, we immediately default to this equation. I pray... God removes my suffering, and that is for the best. I pray, God removes my suffering, and that is for the best. That's the algorithm or the, the equation that's in our head, but the reality can often be otherwise. Paul puts it this way at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-5, through 5, if you're writing notes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction, in all, in, in, in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Notice how Paul puts that there. Jesus' suffering 
is the centerpiece of much of Paul's story. And he pulls us in and he says, we will suffer, but we suffer in fellowship and in union with Jesus. And so we are consoled in that union with Jesus so that we could be an instrument of consolation and comfort to others who are afflicted. Now, lest you think that Jesus' suffering had nothing to do with prayer and the results of prayer, let us think it over again. Jesus prayed often in the gospel accounts. Like Luke chapter 11, verse 1. You may remember we looked at that about six weeks ago. Jesus was praying. When he finished praying, his disciples said, teach us to pray. Do you remember that? And then he gives them basically the Lord's Prayer. He prays often, but he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed sweating bloody like sweat in the intensity of his prayers. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The result of his prayer was suffering. Suffering salvation. So much so that the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7-9. through nine. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Listen, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Oh, wonderful. He was heard. That's in our math equation. That's uh, he prayed. God removes his suffering, right? That's the best. No, he was heard And although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered and being made perfect, complete, mature, if you want to call it that. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who who obey him. So notice that our Lord Jesus was heard. And what was the result? Suffering. So that through that, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The result of our Lord's prayers was suffering salvation. And so therefore, our little math equation is completely wrong. I pray, God removes my suffering, that is best. No, it may not be the best. It may actually be the worst. Does that make sense? That's huge. Go to the gospel. When you're struggling, when you're suffering, and you're praying, and you're wondering why God hasn't magically, momentarily fixed you right then and relieved the pain, go to Jesus. Because the answer that you want may be the worst answer. Are you God? Do you know the, all the possible outcomes? Everybody say no. No! And so it takes an act of faith to trust Him even through suffering. Go to the gospel, go to Jesus. And so, my friends, the whole aim of this presentation, I hope you felt this way, the whole aim of this presentation, to follow our Lord's words, is to encourage us to pray and not lose heart. 
Do we lose heart? I lose heart. I have lost heart in prayer before. This is as much for me as it is for you and anyone else. But to be encouraged and not to lose heart. And secondly, to settle our hearts that the results of prayer may happen right in front of us immediately, like Asa's prayer, or the results may come over a period of slow, steady, steadfast years. As we're praying, 12 years later, here begins the answer to his prayer, Nehemiah. He continues to pray. It takes a year to rebuild the wall, and then he continues to pray. The answers come later. The more the answers come later, slow, steady, steadfast years, or the results, like with Job, may be unanswered answers. We never, ever get satisfied that we, were, that we see the answers. And yet, long after we've turned into ash and dust, those answers are clearly seen. Or, the results may actually come from suffering. I really think D.A. Carson hits this nail right on the head in this quotation you do have. It's right there in your sermon notes. He observes in his book on uh, Call for Spiritual Reformation, he says this, How tragic then if our prayers for good things leave us still thinking of ourselves first still thinking of God's will primarily in terms of its immediate, immediate effect on ourselves, still longing for blessings simply so that we are blessed. The huge corrective in his observation there, and it does come out of the gospel, and it comes out of the Bible story. How tragic then if our prayers for good leave us still thinking of ourselves first, still thinking of God's will primarily in terms of its immediate effect on ourselves, still longing for blessings simply so that we are blessed. Let me come at this a different way, and this will actually, this quotation will actually prepare us for the last sermon in the series, which we'll do in two weeks. Christopher Hutchinson wrote a book on humility. It's a great book on humility, rediscovering humility. Highly recommended. I keep quoting it in my books. It's going to come up in my next book again. It's just that important. But he says this, quote, A church that does not pray much, a church that does not pray much, does not sense its need for God's grace much. A church that does not pray much does not sense its need for God's grace and so we end. We're going to end with William Cooper's statement. William Cooper, remember, suffered deeply with depression, was suicidal at times. But remember, I think this statement is exactly right. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Why would the evil one tremble? Because of the results of prayer. It'll be long, many of them be long after we're gone. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint on his knees. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your story. May it truly encourage us. Forgive us, Lord. We're the ones who often restrain our own prayers. We're the ones that often are our biggest problem and won't pray. 
Forgive us. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged, to always pray and not to lose heart. Truly, Lord, the Father is definitely more gracious and loving and responsive than that unjust judge. And so, help us remember that we are children, that we are children who come to a Father who is able and ready to help us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.